Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today is January 20th, Martin Luther King's recognized birthday in a federal holiday, which is also known as a day of service. Today, in recognition of his sacrifices to civil rights, everyone is encouraged to volunteer to improve their communities in some way. Doesn't have to be huge, but it does have to be meaningful. For example, today I'll be bringing some children's books down to a local shelter for donation. If you have some free time today and are looking for a way to contribute, go to www.nationalservice.gov for some ideas. Remember, you don't have to be feeding the entire homeless of New York City all day today, but you should be doing something. But I don't have to tell the scientists, caregivers, and those with autism about donating your time to improve your communities. Every day, pretty much relentlessly, you guys are working to help those affected with autism spectrum disorders, either by helping family members or others in the community, advocating in every way for better treatment of those affected by ASD, even indirectly, by participating in awareness of fundraising events for science, research, and understanding. Also, you guys volunteer your time with a local organization that helps people on the spectrum. The concept of service is not lost on you, and just by being today, you're likely helping to serve those in your community and someone that needs it, so thank you. Dr. King fought for the civil rights of people from all underserved communities, but while he was alive, it was those from African-American backgrounds that were being the most obviously and blatantly violated. Maybe if he were alive today, he could be fighting for the rights of the disabled. And his actions did pave the way for those who currently fight for people with ASD to stand up and take action, to encourage others to do so, to recognize when someone is being treated less than someone else, and to have the confidence and awareness to change things, not just for a certain group, but for the world. In recognition of those from African-American backgrounds that are still disenfranchised, including autism spectrum disorder diagnosis and access to services, I want to mention a study that came out last year about this topic. Late last year, so it missed the 2019 year-end summary, but that's okay. I'm going to include it now. It looks at disparities in diagnosis using the ADAM network, the Autism Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. That's the system in the U.S. that counts the number of eight-year-olds in certain districts in certain states. It's run by the CDC, and it's what gives us the 1 in 59 number. They use it to report back every two years about the prevalence of autism in eight-year-olds and now four-year-olds and even now kids older than eight-year-old. They look at what percent have an intellectual disability and how many kids with African-American or Hispanic backgrounds are both are getting counted as ASD compared to white kids. The way they do this is they literally have people going into different schools within these states that participate and sit down with educational and health records or both, and they count how many have a diagnosis of ASD. They compare those that have a diagnosis of ASD that's put in the record as a diagnosis and how many that have signs and symptoms of ASD that probably should have a documented diagnosis but don't. So they call thousands of medical records, teacher notes, IEPs, nurses' records, referrals noted in the school or health forms, diagnostic codes, and educational eligibility. They look at whether or not they get services and for what and what it says on those notes. Anything in the health or education record, Adam gets to take a look at it. Now, there are some differences across states on what's available on health versus education records. And as I mentioned previously in a podcast, 
based on the state of interest, some people diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders don't get an official diagnosis of ASD in the system. Some get, quote unquote, other educational concern. So they have to look through those as well. Two expert clinician reviewers sit down at every school, in every district, in every state that's included in Adam, and go through every report, making sure no case of ASD is missed. Now you know why these reports take so long. The most recent report found that 4,498 children met criteria for ASD, and they were counted as having ASD in the Adam report. However, about one quarter of them didn't have an official diagnosis in their record. In other words, they met criteria based on everything that was available on the paperwork, but ASD was never stated as itself as a diagnosis. Now, half of those were getting zilch in services. By itself, this information is pretty shocking and also has enormous public health implications, both for the nature of autism and the prevalence numbers for ASD across countries that may not use the same ADAM system. There were some differences across states on the ratio of those who had a documented ASD diagnosis and those who had met criteria without a diagnosis. Minnesota actually had an equal number of those who had a diagnosis and those who met criteria with no diagnosis. The rest of the states ranged from a small difference to a seven times difference. I could and I might talk about all the differences between those with a documented ASD diagnosis and those who met the criteria but were not diagnosed. That's for a future podcast. For example, fewer of those with no official diagnosis had developmental concerns before three years, and more with no official diagnosis showed signs and symptoms at a later age. But what bothers me and relevant for this podcast is those from African-American and Hispanic backgrounds compared to white kids were more likely to be in the group that did not receive an official diagnosis, but met ASD criteria. Again, those from African-American and Hispanic backgrounds compared to white kids were more likely to be in the group that did not receive an official diagnosis, but still met the criteria. This is obviously a disparity that needs to be addressed among all the others. I could probably make some academic comments of some of the other findings, but the racial and ethnic disparities is really totally unacceptable. Why is this happening and what needs to be done to change it is something that multiple autism advocacy organizations, including ASF, Autism Speaks, and the Autism Society of America are all trying to address. But instead of leaving you on an angry note, I do want to mention some good news. A new study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is the largest so far, looking at a specific type of intervention called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's used to treat anxiety in people with ASD. As you know, anxiety is a huge problem. It can lead to crisis situations and maybe at the core of comorbid features of ASD and even self-injury. Treatment for anxiety and ASD has been tough. Scientists don't really know if the anxiety that presents is the same, and medication efficacy has been mixed. Previous studies have looked at this cognitive behavioral therapy and found that it does mitigate some signs of anxiety in people with autism. CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapies, use a number of techniques to change patterns in thinking or behavior that are behind people's difficulties and change the way they feel. 
It includes things like exposure therapy, where fears are presented so they become less and less emotionally impactful with every presentation. In addition to anxiety, it's been used in a number of conditions, and so it does have an evidence base. But so far, studies looking at anxiety and ASD have used standard cognitive behavioral therapy versus nothing at all and found a small effect. This new study looked at standard cognitive behavioral therapy versus a version adapted and developed for people with ASD and found that the updated version adapted for ASD was actually better. Now, how is it different? Compared to standard cognitive behavioral therapy, children received 16 weekly 90-minute sessions rather than 60-minute sessions. The intervention used an algorithm to personalize treatment based on the multifaceted clinical presentations of ASD. Children's disruptive behavior was addressed to reduce noncompliance. Children were also taught social engagement skills like playdate hosting and joining peers at play to address anxiety relating to other people. The children's special interests were treating as an asset and incorporated into the treatment to promote engagement. I know a lot of people feel like interventions only target the behaviors that they want to eliminate. That's not the case. In this case specifically, the children's special interests, again, are treated as an asset and incorporated into treatment to promote engagement. And finally, target behaviors are reinforced with a comprehensive reward system at home and in where relevant in school to promote motivation and treatment engagement. This entire program is online and the link to the publication is in the podcast description. Both intervention groups did better than no CBT or the treatment as usual group, but again, the adapted CBT did the best and produced meaningful improvements in anxiety. This gives hope to better interventions, especially for anxiety for people with autism. Next week, I'm going to bring you some new exciting findings in genetics, furthering the science that genetically people across different psychiatric issues and neurodevelopmental disorders belong to all one big happy family, or maybe not happy, or maybe happy. Talk to you next week.